This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest live from Steve's Porch Edition. It's Wednesday, August 17th, 2016. On today's show, we sit on my windy, gusty back porch in a beautiful late summer, late afternoon, and we uh, take uh, listener questions. Um, so what do you say, guys? Should we just dig in? Yeah, I think so. If people can hear us behind the susurrations of the tree leaves behind us, dig away. All right, let's take the first call. Hello, this is Katie in Santa Barbara, and since this is your vacation episode, I thought I'd ask a question for your inner child, which is, um, what is your uh, secret favorite childish thing? So, for instance, you talked about Pokemon Go, which I love playing with my 12-year-old son. We've had a blast exploring our neighborhood in that way, but I would feel a little embarrassed just wandering around playing by myself as a grown woman. Um, another thing in that category for me is, like, building sandcastles. Love it if I have any excuse. So in that vein, what's yours? Uh, well, the experience of parenting is the experience of rediscovering what childhood stuff you enjoy. So there's a lot of tactile pleasures, like the particular feeling of the lump of extruded Play-Doh when it comes out of a fresh uh, can and that smell and the weird kind of textured ends of it and the smooth sides that is very pleasurable. One thing I've discovered is I really can see why my boys love trains and they're not quite dexterous enough to make complicated train tracks themselves yet. So often at the outset of like a long weekend morning of just train play, I will go all in with the tracks and build like a super elaborate, complicated loop-to-loop with bridges and underpasses. And I sometimes feel that I should seed the track building and let them inaptly build worse incomplete, um, you know, speed style Jan de Bont, like plunging into the abyss uh, infrastructure projects. But I really like building a nice track for them to play on. It's very satisfying to figure out the right curvature of the little wooden tracks and make sure they meet up with the other tracks. You guys had girls. Did you never do the train thing? 
Yeah, I have a girl and also a child who is not particularly interested in manipulable object toys. I mean, obviously, when she was a toddler, you know, she liked to play with blocks and things like that. But we've always found that when we get her a thing, an object that you play with, it doesn't really get played with. So, no, not not a train person. I think, well, I recognize the, the sandcastle love from the from the caller. I try to build a sandcastle every time I go to the beach, whether a kid's there or not. And I also strongly am in favor of the drip castle as opposed mm. to the formed sandcastle. I really agree. I feel like only at certain beaches is the sand truly drip castle worthy. I think it's like a more fine-grained beach sand where you get better drip castles. Right. You couldn't do it as much on a, on a Cape Cod kind of rocky beach. It needs to be like a New Jersey fine sand beach, which yeah. is it's also better for, for forming. You know, and if you've got little cups and things, it's fun to make turrets, but nothing is as much fun as bringing up bucket after bucket of water and just creating that goopy stew and then making the highest fairy-like drip towers you can make. I, when I was a little kid, I was totally obsessed with dollhouses but I think there was a, a a kind of recoiling and horror on the part of my parents that it was gender inappropriate to be so obsessed with dollhouses. And I think of it as kind of an obsession with architecture and modeling things architecturally, but it was also something about playing around with a miniature domestic space somehow uh, obsessed me when I was a kid, but I always had to sneak my dollhouse time. But I still, I still kind of love them. I, it's true, I don't, sneak into my younger daughter's room to play with her dollhouse because even I would find that a little strange but I have to admit I really liked it when she played with uh, her dollhouse and let me play with her too why don't we queue up the next next question a uh, question for Dana specifically but I'd love for the rest of you to opine as well I am in Little Rock Arkansas I'm a newly commissioned middle school history teacher one who is determined to uh, exceed my own models uh, of that profession my own experience was like so many. We were parked in front of a lot of movies to to represent the past. I'd love to hear you guys uh, reflect on your own experience with cinema in the classroom, and uh, love to hear you as well uh, pontificate or opine on the uh, pedagogical limits of cinema as uh, depicting the past. Are there any particular movies that come to mind that you think would be useful or particularly legitimate, either in part or in whole, for helping to give middle schoolers a sense of particular eras of the past. All right, this is a great question, and I think we're all going to have different answers to this, especially because, and I like this fact, he doesn't specify what period of history he's talking about or exactly what what kind of approach. So I'm just going to talk about some films that I've taught, you know, over my years as a grad student instructor, I taught a lot of film. I never taught a class on film, but would often teach comparative literature or rhetoric classes that incorporated film in some ways. And I, I can tell you that some classic films that students tended to respond to very strongly um, and that can fit into a lot of different contexts are, for example, Rashomon, Kurosawa's Rashomon, which, you know, by the time you're our age, you sort of think, oh, Rashomon, the movie about perspective. It's the movie about a story, a single story, a crime told from various perspectives. But that can really blow the mind of, of younger people who haven't really thought about perspective and the role that it plays in art. I'm not sure exactly how this fits into a history class, but Rashomon was always something that went over big with young college students when I taught it. Maybe slightly more historical, Spielberg's Lincoln seems like it could be something great if you're teaching American history because you learn something about the, the process of you know, legislative debate, and you certainly have a feeling after seeing that Daniel Day-Lewis performance that you've met and spent time with Abraham Lincoln. 
another movie that my students always loved, and this I used to teach in a class, um, in the context of this class about trials, about the law on film, and, uh, and the movie that they always loved the most was Witness for the Prosecution. It's a Billy Wilder film with Charles Lawton and Marlena Dietrich, and uh, it's, it's full of twists and turns and is kind of a, a trial whodunit. Um, but it's, it's something that's, that's also great for sort of teaching uh, points of view in a way. You know, it's a movie that starts off in a certain genre and has, sets you up for certain expectations about femme fatales and, you know, courts of law and what happens in them and so forth. And as the rug keeps getting pulled out from you over and over and over again, it turns out to be a film about much more than, than you originally thought um but but i'm feeling like these aren't really historical enough except for lincoln what do you what do you guys have i did not watch that many movies in my schooling and i think documentaries were the ones that seemed to fit productively into an academic context like if you're i don't know to me if you were watching a fictional take on a historical moment i guess maybe that's a good way to get young students engaged but the questions end up being questions of like fiction and representation and storytelling and the relationship between how you look at history. I mean, maybe that would be... But that's really important, I think, to... to I mean, I was never taught history in that way, for sure. I feel like history was always taught to me as if it was a succession of factual events that happened in a certain order. And the idea of looking at it as a perspectival prism didn't really come along until college. It would be neat to come up with a historical event of which several great movies had been made in different periods, like to find, well, I suppose when this new uh, movie called Birth of a Nation comes out this year, there will be a natural opportunity to uh, look at both of those movies, although maybe that's not a high school age curriculum. But I remember seeing actually just the Eyes on the Prize, uh, that classic documentary series, I think it initially aired on PBS maybe, about the civil rights movement, um, and the actuality the visual and and video evidence of what happened in our country during that time I remember having my mind totally blown by it and just feeling like if there's going to be screen time in your history class just like show the footage and and some of those you know worthy not super inventive necessarily in their storytelling but just totally straightforward this is what happened and this is what happened and this is what happened and here's some people where they're talking about it and here's some footage of it at the time and around and around like for for 20th century history I think that's great to kind of feel everything I just said uh, I suppose you could do a great unit about the Cold War and include uh, Dr. Strangelove as like a representation of the kind of cultural impact of that moment yeah I, I think isn't there something sort of dangerous about trying to teach history through the content of a film, right? Because history is always totally sacrificed to the you know narrative and commercial exigencies of Hollywood movies. But I think one way you could do it, though this would be not for middle schoolers, but it would be fascinating to teach like Bonnie and Clyde, not because it's in any way an accurate representation of the 1930s and who these, you know, you know, they're, they're obviously they're they're historic figures, historical figures, but not as any kind of revelation about who the real Clyde Barrow and Bonnie, whatever her name was, Parker, Parker were. But uh, about the '60s, like you could say, look, like every era decides it's going to come to grips with who it is by displacing all of its anxieties and and pre- half-hidden preoccupations on another era. And so it's really it's totally interesting to me to see period cinema from another time other than your own. And um, 
So that's a great one, right? Like, so Bonnie and Clyde is dealing with Vietnam and dealing with the fact that Vietnam, Vietnam can't be depicted in an honest way um, to, like, to Americans. So it's, it's like the first film in which you see bullets actually rip the flesh of a character. You actually see blood result from gunshot wounds. And you could, I mean, again, this isn't for fifth graders, but ninth graders or 11th graders. Well, I, I actually took a class like this and I haven't actually probably given Bob Gilpin history teacher uh, enough props for being like a seed of my culture gap fest self but I took an elective history class my senior fall or spring uh, that was a I forget what the framing of it was but it was it was essentially a film class like a film criticism class but it was all about understanding films in historical context he was like a history teacher who was a film buff and we saw like so many amazing movies and we saw the deer hunter and talked about vietnam and we i saw the best years of our lives and we talked about world war ii and i remember writing a paper about um i think my final paper was about sort of i just did like a bunch of political movies like from mr smith goes to washington to the candidate to you know all the president's men and parallax view and sort of the the evolution of um, it's a huge topic for a 12th grader, but it was, I remember sort of thinking critically through how movies made about the American political system at different moments in time reflected those moments in time, which was sort of a novel way to think about uh, fictional representations of historical moments and how cultural and social anxieties came out in in films. Uh, and it felt really fun. It was like fun to apply, start to apply the critical stuff I'd been learning in English class in a more pop culture and recent history context. And I t- I'd kind of forgotten that, but that class was totally world-changing, probably. All right, next question. Hi, this is Jimmy from Youngstown. I have a question for Steve, Dana, and Julia. I was curious to know if any of you have used Uber or Lyft or both and what your experience was with both services. Uh, I use Uber all the time. It solves a problem in New York City, which is that it used to be you could say, well, maybe I'll take a taxi. It'll be more expensive, but it'll be faster, assuming I can get one quickly. Or maybe I'll take the subway. It'll be cheaper and slower. And I also don't know when it'll come, but I basically know, like, the, the... the variation of how screwed up your time frame will be on the subway is sort of slightly less than a cab because sometimes you can get a cab instantly, sometimes you can't get a cab for 40 minutes in the old world of hailing cabs. Um, and with Uber, you just like remove that. So you just make a pure decision. Do you, would you rather go cheaper uh, but a little slower or would you rather go sometimes faster and more expensive and then you just once you've made that decision, if you use Uber, it just works. I don't for all that Uber is evil, stipulated, uh, and that its labor practices are weird, and that it's uh, using all of these drivers while it comes up with robot cars to ferry us around. They've made a great user interface and a great app that just works and does a lot of really complicated things very, very, very reliably. And so I respect it. And then in the world of like having brand loyalty, which I do, like I use Crest toothpaste and I just will never buy Colgate and there's no reason for it. So in the world of irrational corporate loyalty, Uber was the first mover on my car app heart and somehow Lyft's 
thirsty purple mustache just seems kind of grotesque, and I have no reason to go bother with it. Uh, are you guys Uberites? I mean, in New York, you don't really need either one. So I didn't have an app for either one on my phone. But on that recent trip to Los Angeles that I decided to take carlessly, <laughs> uh, I did have to get one of the two. And I got Lyft just because, not to get all soapboxy about it, but they just seem like the far more ethical company. When we did our live show in San Francisco, one of our segments was on this so-called sharing economy and these services like Uber that are, that are growing up, you know, with people contracting their own gigs, etc., and maybe some of these things have changed since then, but every single thing I read about Uber was so grim. It just started to sound like, you know, those inside Amazon tell-all stories you read where you just realize that, you know, you'd be tithing your soul to this company that treats its its laborers like crap. So as a result, feeling somehow, and also the name, I hate the name Uber. It's so awful that they used like the Nazi word and that they have this like sort of forbidding black icon with the, with the word Uber on it. Anyway, so so... We, we used Lyft on the L.A. trip instead, and uh, it was great. It seemed to do the thing that apps are supposed to do, and interesting, nice drivers came and picked us up and took us where we needed to go. I don't feel like now that I'm back in New York again, I'm probably going to use it that much, but I guess I, I have it in an emergency. Mm-hmm. So is it that Uber is Walmart and Lyft is Costco? You know, they're sort of essentially the same thing, but you're supposed to feel much better about using Maybe one. Maybe Lyft is like Target? Okay. I don't know. I'm not sure, though, because, again, the branding of Target is cool and the branding of Lyft is hokey. Well, well I'm, to, to, to cast aside Dana's ethical concerns and focus on what really matters. <laughs> well, if I can just say, we had some drivers in L.A. who drove for both, which I didn't know you could do. So we'd get in the car and we'd see a sign turned around to the inside that said Uber in their window. And so we, I started asking them, what is it like to drive for both companies? And several different drivers said, either I don't drive for Uber anymore because they, they take a bigger cut and, you know, it's, just, it's, a, it's a less agreeable company to work for and you come away with less net gain. Or they say, you know, I'll do both, but I prefer to drive for Lyft if possible. And I think that they also sort of like the rider pool for Lyft better. And that may be just because it's a more limited, you know, Uber is so ex- successful and such an expansive service that it's kind of the automatic, it's the Band-Aids, you know, the brand name of, of ride-sharing services. And... Several drivers said you're more likely to get a drunk, belligerent person with an, with an Uber pickup than you are with a Lyft pickup. Yeah, I feel like I need someone to tell me whether it's ethical to use Uber because I definitely do. I'm now a kind of... When I'm in New York City, I never do. I always take the subway or walk or, you know, hail a cab. But um, in uh, unfamiliar cities, it's incredible how easy it makes your life. I mean, especially, I mean, let's face it. I mean, New York City has a next to completely anomalous public transportation system. You know, next to every other major American city, it's not as if you go to San Francisco and BART is the equivalent of the MTA. It just isn't. And of course, in LA, you're completely stranded without a car. So there are circumstances in, in which the convenience or like in Toronto where I really didn't know my way around and really wasn't able to decipher the public transportation system all that easily. You know, it just was, it's so, it's so convenient. It's so easy. It's so seamless. It's, but if it's grinding down these drivers, I really don't want to use it. I feel like Uber, Amazon, and Facebook I've, are, just, are these three companies that I've just decided are sort of the holy trinity of awful capitalism that I don't want to patronize. And I, I'm probably basing that on, you know, outdated data from some expose read years ago, but they, they remain in their trinity formation. All right, let's, uh, let's take another question. 
Hi, Slate GabFest. My name is Jane, and I'm calling from Watertown, Massachusetts. My question is for Julia. Julia, you've mentioned that you like to orate your text messages into your cell phone. And I've tried doing this with not a lot of success, and I'm wondering if you could talk more about your method. Do you, you know, I've I've noticed that I have to speak, like, without any emotion, and then my text messages seem really emotionless. And I'm wondering if you actually say out loud, period, exclamation point, question mark, and how you make it so that your text messages come off as if you didn't just dictate them into the phone. I've also noticed that when I receive text messages from people, I can tell when they've dictated them because there's no punctuation or they just seem really emotionless. So thanks so much. Really love the show. Thanks a lot. Well, I feel like as I answer this question, I should dictate my answer the way I would dictate it (laughs) into the phone, and then we can check at the end to see how accurately it was recorded, all right? So starting now, I'm going to dictate this response as though it was a text. It's really interesting to me that you find there is less personality in dictated messages, period. I find, comma, that talking to the phone, comma, can actually make the way that you write seem more conversational, period, because it's a little bit more like having a conversation, period. As you can hear, comma, it's sort of slowed down, comma, but not totally different than the way I talk, just slower, period. Let's see how I did, period. So anyway, as you can hear, I totally sounded like a crazy person doing that, which is why I don't like to do it in public, although I guess I've broken that seal. Um, but I find if you talk like that, it, it picks it up pretty well. And Dana here, Dana can confirm whether this fairly accurately got uh, what I just said. Yeah, I don't see a misspelled word or an autocorrect error in here. And that, that, was, that sounded about like your normal speaking voice, except for naming the punctuation. Do you actually dictate emails if you have a long, kind of significant email to write? Uh, if the email is either long or significant, I, I will just wait till I'm at a computer. But uh, short and significant or short and insignificant, I both will do in this manner. As it's more like if you're alone in a car or alone somewhere. The thing I will say to Jane, I'm not sure how long she's tried this, but I do think the technology learns your voice and your mode. So I would encourage you to stick with it for, I don't know, a couple weeks because I I found that my phone basically learned me and learned the way I dictated and then got to where I almost barely ever have to correct anything. All right, let's, uh, let's take another question. Hi, this is Valentine from San Francisco. And I was wondering what all of y'all's power emoji is for your most frequently used one. Thank you. All right. I have to begin by admitting I have no idea what a power emoji is. Julia, can you enlighten me here? I think he defined it for you in the question with the clause, your most frequently used one. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Okay. Uh, I don't use emojis, so no. It's a null set. Yeah. Uh, mine is the same as when we talked about emoji at our live show a year and a half ago. The What I believe is referred to as the ear of rice is the official name of the emoji, but looks to me like a swaying dune grass stalk is the emoji that I text back and forth with my sister to connote uh, 
wishes for serenity of the sort that you find in dunes near a beach. <laughs> so, like, if she's having a hectic day, I'll send her some dunes. Uh, it's just sort of a, like, everything's going to be zen, don't worry, kind of emoji. Uh, I also like the yellow heart. It seems like a non-romantic heart. So if a non-romantic friend or colleague does something that you uh, that gives you heart-type feelings, sometimes I'll use a yellow heart as to be like a friend heart. I would say, yeah, I don't, when we talked about this at, our, at one of our live shows, I don't remember if I said this or not. And so if I'm repeating myself, I'm sorry. But in my family, we've each come to adopt a certain emoji to represent us, which is one way to make typing faster. <laughs> Instead of someone's name, you can just go to their emoji and it'll always be in your most recents because you text a lot back and forth with your family's name. So I'm the octopus <laughs> because that's one of my favorite animals. And that's just a great emoji, that little purple octopus. Um, my man is a, is a rowboat because that's my nickname for him. You know, the little guy rowing the boat. And, uh, and my daughter is the flamenco dancer girl. And so, yeah, well, sometimes, for example, if I'm missing them, I'll probably do this on this trip. I'll send them an octopus with the little thinking cloud and then put the two of them after it. Oh, and the poodle. The poodle represents our dog. So those are just those are oft used because they refer to people. But one of my favorite random emojis to just plonk on people because it makes no sense and connotes no particular thing that I can think of is the Easter Island head. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the Easter Island head is just it's so great that it's in there. Apparently, Forrest Wickman did some background research on why the Easter Island head made it into the emoji canon. And apparently there's a statue in Tokyo, I didn't see it when we were there, called the Moai statue that's sort of, a re- that's sort of copied after the Easter Island heads and is, is in a hip part of town that I'm not going to remember the name of. And so maybe in, for Japanese people, it, com- it either connotes meet me at that statue or we're going to the cool part of town or something. But for me, it's just sort of, here's a big rock head that exists out on an island in the Pacific. I think I'll add it to my note to you and let the person figure it out. I do really like the Dada... I mean, I think we talked about this before, too, but the the way that emoji allow for individualized Dada meanings in small sets. So um, I sent my husband, like, the sushi roll as a non sequitur in the middle of a conversation. And I was like, I think I'm just going to start sending him the sushi roll a lot. We had just, like, had a really nice sushi dinner the nice be- night before, but it was not about that. It was just sort of, like, as a total non sequitur to a question. And he was like, what is that? What do you mean? (laughs) (laughs) For some reason, also, the spiral always gets me. The spiral can mean so many things. You know, it can sort of indicate vertiginous, you know, boredom or dazzlement or something. (laughs) Um, So so sometimes to describe my reaction to something that, you know, was a wowza kind of moment, I'll I'll, I'll emoji that blue spiral to someone. All right, let's let's move on to a non-emoji question. Hi, Slate Gabfesters. Uh, This is Jay. A uh, long-time listener, Slate Plus member, love the show, makes my commute great. This question is for all of you guys, whoever wants to take it. What do you make of the idea of sort of collective genius? I feel like we often spend a lot of time talking about individual geniuses, um, but what do you idea, think of the idea of people having a genius together? Uh, I'm a pretty big music fan. I'm a big uh, Beatles fan, and I think of Lennon-McCartney as a great example, both talented on their own, but somehow, even when not working together directly, but in their proximities, they reached higher. I think of the Motown and Stax assembly system. Uh, I think of a lot of uh, music from that time period, a lot of uh, TV, a lot of films, all in contrast to the kind of author singular genius model. Um, so, so some thoughts about collective genius versus um, 
uh, singular genius would be great. I feel like we fetishize the singular lone genius. Thanks a lot. Bye. Um, I'm going to say that we have started to fetishize, de-fetishizing the singular genius. And it's time to go back to that model. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Elaborate. I'll elaborate. I mean, we've gone through a period in popular culture where the author has been pretty massively downgraded, especially in popular music. I mean, you know, Jody Rosen has been campaigning on an anti, you know, anti-auteur platform now for eight election cycles, and I think has won every time. And um, it's much more now about the producer or the song factory. And um, it's irrelevant whether the star is the author of the music. It's more about whether he or she can be, you know, the kind of uniquely charismatic superstar behind which is this elaborate team of image and and song consultants. And um, I actually think, uh, you know, the, the room of one's own is just an indispensable way of looking at how certain things get made because they they need to get some things need to get made in the you know sort of apart from the glare of the market and have to reflect completely the totally individual sensibility of the person authoring them i mean not all things and i think collective genius is huge there are obvious examples of it i mean you have you know the book frankenstein getting written because if if i remember the anecdote correctly right i mean it's you have byron shelley and mary shelley all spending the weekend in some gothic castle somewhere and they challenge one another to come up with a ghost story and that's and frankenstein is you know truly one of the great english novels ever written and certainly the great horror story novel of all time but um and you could argue that it was collective genius right they were all romantic poets they were all part of a very self-conscious movement um and they were all friends and they were all rivals. But I think the important part of that story also is that they all went to their separate bedrooms to write the, you know, horror story. And um, so I, you can kind of spin it either way. But I think we've just lived through a moment where it's actually much more common to pat oneself on the back for de-fetishizing the author. So I think it's time to s- start spinning it the other way. But there's one genre in which I think that holds less true, which is film. I mean, the auteur theory in film took over our kind of critical understanding of of what it is to produce a work of art for so many decades that I still think, even in in, in our sort of hyper-corporate era when thousands of people are involved in making a film, one of these big blockbusters has, you know, teams of, you know, people all over the globe putting it together, including the effects and the sound and all of that. And uh, and the idea that that's all placed on the shoulders of this one person, the director, and that it then becomes, you know, a... Joel and Ethan Cohen film. I mean, that's a little bit of it. That's a, a strange example because they truly are auteurs, but they also have teams that they've built up over decades, right? I mean, their movies wouldn't be the same if they didn't choose very carefully their director of photography, their music composer, you know, the, the people who put together their costumes. It really is a, a massive work of collaboration. And obviously, the great directors the great filmmakers are the ones who are able to orchestrate all of that, but you have to have something to orchestrate. You know, you have to have that pool of talent. So I think that's, that's important to remember. And I always, when I'm writing about a movie, try to keep in mind at all times that this isn't just one person's vision unfolding on the screen, you know, that a whole lot of people had to get on the same page to try to make it happen. Thinking about this in the context of making journalism, 
where maybe genius isn't the word you apply to the best of journalism if we're thinking about really a truly like a creative endeavor attempting to make art of some kind. Um, but in journalism, just the collaborative is the best. It's the best. I mean, that's like why I'm a journalist. I thought I would be an academic, and then one semester I was supposed to both write my thesis and edit the college newspaper, and it was just so much more fun to be in a room with smart people and um, like bounce ideas off of each other and create something that was greater than the sum of what any one of our brains could create. And I don't know, maybe that's why I'm in the field that I'm in and I'm not trying to produce a great work of art. But I think the joy of collaboration and making great things with other people is one of life's amazing great joys and I feel so lucky that I get to do that in my job and I don't know the life of the lonely solo genius seems scant to me in comparison if only this podcast was a collaborative effort instead of just Steve holding the puppet strings and manipulating us all (laughs) it's true they're they're, Dan and Julia are just they're just phantasms of my own imagination we're but small miniatures in Steve's dollhouse, in the dollhouse of Steve's mind. <laughs> it's true. It's true. But Dana, can I just like push back on you for a second? I mean, isn't part of the problem with these huge blockbusters that clearly have thousands, if not tens of thousands of co-authors, doesn't, hasn't that, isn't that part of what's made them so flavorless in a way? And that when they do take on something like a distinctive character, it is because there's one person really pushing a vision on every one of those technicians. And so it's kind of a CEO auteur, you know, the film director is. But without that, you get movies that are interchangeable. Well, I mean, I'll push back on your pushback by saying, well, that might be true for some big swampy, muddy blockbusters that don't seem to belong to any one vision or idea. Think about Pixar. You know, I mean, I guess you could say, oh, Pete Docter directed this Pixar, John Lasseter directed this Pixar, but really a Pixar movie to me feels like a Pixar movie. And yes, there are a few big minds that are behind that company and that projected that vision in the first place. But but if there's if there's any work of art, and many of which I think are brilliant, brilliant movies that will last, um, that was that was feel like it was made by a group of people. It's it's those Pixar films. Yeah, uh, I'm gonna um, I'm gonna fold in the face of your pushback. There's a great book called The Genius of the System by I think his name is Thomas Schatz, and it's basically a history of the major studios during the golden age of the studio. And his it's an anti-auteur book basically because you know his his theory is that these house styles were so distinct and you really knew what a paramount movie was what a warner's movie was you know um and uh and um and he goes into the history of how these sort of unit production producers or whatever put together teams that were consistent over time and that's how you ended up with uh, a certain look at universal or a certain and obviously of course they had you know long-term employment contracts with all their ta- talent, including the movie stars. So there was incredible consistency between, you know, movies. Um, the teams were just the same and the, and, the, and the stable of actors was the same. But I haven't read that book and I want to get the title from you because that sounds like that will fit perfectly into my reading right now. But I mean, some very obvious examples of that, of the house style you're talking about, is just the simple fact that the two great 
blockbusters of 1939 and still some of the great you know American classics Gone with the Wind and Wizard of Oz both had multiple directors I think Wizard of Oz had three and Gone with the Wind had two or it might be the reverse but in both cases either because you know the director needed to go work on another project or it wasn't working with him he wasn't getting along with the producer there were directors being hired and fired right and left and you know those are really the productions of an entire studio an entire team all right, uh, I think we're going to do a couple more of these, so let's, uh, let's dig right back in. Hi, this is Miles from Brooklyn. I'm calling with a question specifically for Julia and Dana. Um, this one's regarding fashion. I know that um, from some really entertaining episodes with Simon Dunan on and with some reviews of the Met uh, Costume Gala Institute's exhibits that you all seem to have a pretty interesting and... Um, I don't know, I would say, like, respectful take on fashion and um, its craftsmanship and regarding it as an art form. I'm curious, Julia and Dana, how does that interest manifest itself outside of, say, a Met exhibit? Um, Do you read fashion magazines? I know they can be uh, complicated, to say the least, but how do you consume fashion if you are interested in it um, the way that I suspect you are? Thanks so much. You two are lovely. Bye. Oh, they are lovely, aren't they, Miles? <laughs> <laughs> well, you're on to me. I do care about and think fashion and design is interesting. Um, but in New York, it's just kind of there. Like, that's one reason why I wouldn't move to another city. This is just so fun to look around and see what people are wearing all over New York. You get so many, so much visual candy so many different ideas. Everybody's putting on a different kind of show for a different kind of audience. There's so much to wonder about. And the way everybody gets dressed feels like some expression of something. And there's little semaphores and signals to read and be curious about. So I watch people. I do not read fashion magazines. I don't subscribe to any. I never look at them unless I have my sister brings one on vacation and we look at it together. And we play a game where we both look at a page and we scrutinize it and we decide which thing we would most want and which thing we think our sister would most want. And then we compare our notes to see whether we got our own taste and our sister's taste right, which is like a game we've been playing since we were 12 that we still do. It's really fun. Um, what about fashion websites? Do you go to Tom and Lorenzo or, or the Fug Girls or any of those kind of um, breakdown of celebrity outfit sites? Well, celebrity fashion isn't very interesting. I don't read... Tom and Lorenzo, their Mad Men recaps are, were incredible, but their fashion, their celebrity style analysis is really catty. It's just like, she looked at bad, she looked good. Like, I don't, I, I, I don't like their red carpet analysis at all, even though I think their, like, critical reviews of costume design are extraordinary. I think there's, like, a real difference in the quality there. The GoFug girls are amazing, but they're not really doing fashion either. They're sort of using red carpet photos as tableaus upon which to project, like, imagined universes of celebrity fan fiction, uh, and they're hilarious. So it's more like a comedy site that takes place in a fashion context. You're right. You're right. And I'm so glad they reinstituted comments. Remember those terrible years where there were no comments on the Fug Girl sites? I think because they started to get either too long or too contentious or something, and they eliminated the comment feature. They've now brought it back, and the commenters on that site are such good writers and so funny. There's just some regulars who I can't remember their handles now, but when they bring something to the game, you, you know it's going to be great. Yeah, I don't read fashion magazines either. I would say that looking at those two sites, which I occasionally do, especially especially after the big Met Gala ball or sometime when you know there's going to be crazy outfits after the Oscars, et cetera, I'll look at those. 
And uh, R.I.P. Bill Cunningham. I always looked at those roundups. And after he started doing videos of them, online videos that would, you know, ca- encapsulate some sort of New York fashion trend, I would watch the videos, too. Um, so I don't know where I'll go for that fix now. I guess I'll just have to sit in cafes and people watch. Um, all right. Well, let's, uh, why don't we take our final question? We'll wrap it up. But let's, uh, let's hear what we have. Hi, this is Rachel from Brooklyn, New York. And I wanted to ask, I have two small daughters, and I was curious what the culture gabfesters do when their children get exposed to and interested in cultural products that maybe through school or friends that you yourself yeah. don't think is that great. Um, this, for me, would be like the whole Disney catalog, for example, um, Frozen, Sleeping Beauty, Cinderella, things that my daughter learned about really through her classmates at school and now is really into and which I think are kind of terrible. Do you actively dissuade? Do you sort of just let it go? <laughs> um, or uh, do you have some sort of middle ground? I would love any advice um, you have about this. And thanks for the show. It's really the best. Oh, that's a really good question. I would be interested to know how old the, ch- the caller's children are, because I think this changes a lot as your kid gets bigger and, you know, can make more choices for themselves and might be interested in kinds of things that you do like or might, you know, take your advice or watch something with you. I mean, if if you have kids, it sounds like she has two girls. I just feel like they are going to go through some kind of Disney princess period at, at some different level of obsession. Maybe it's just owning a costume. Maybe it's, you know, watching a movie. Maybe it's doing a pretend game. But that's so much part of the ambient culture that it seems kind of pointless to fight against it. But my only words of wisdom or comfort would just be that, like everything else in early childhood, it will pass on soon to something else. And that my daughter had, around second or third grade, I think, a very steep, you know, like a 180-degree turnaround of just princess stuff is stupid and it's too girly and I'm a tomboy and identifying with the exact opposite, you know. And so whatever gender-building function that had served for her was just done, and she was happy to discard it. And... uh and even now, yeah, she may watch some some shows that I consider trashy, but once in a while she'll introduce me to an incredible show like Phineas and Ferb, which I never would have discovered if not for her interest in it. So I don't know. To me, I wouldn't sweat it. And I think just like with food, right, with picky kids, trying to lecture them about how healthy it would be if they would watch, you know, National Velvet instead of Barbie's Dream Kitchen or whatever is, is kind of counterproductive. Dana, I think you're totally right. I think the thing to do also is just make sure that if you disapprove of something, don't give it the glamour of the forbidden to your kids. And I think a certain kind of passive attitude in the face of, you know, princessy stuff or super hyper gendered or, you know, kind of super traditionally and implicitly or explicitly demeaning, you know, feminine stereotyping and all that stuff. They'll pass through it if you don't if you don't um, seize on it. In uh, in any overly obvious way, so you just hang back and let them let them get over it. I would also say that of the things that she mentioned, there's some distinction, and that the newer Disney films, whether or not you think they're aesthetic masterpieces, are not anywhere near as sexist and retrograde as they used to be. And Frozen may get on your nerves for other reasons, but I don't, you really can't argue that that's some kind of a, if anything, it's a girl power manifesto. Yeah, I was surprised that she mentioned that because I don't remember disapproving of it. Certainly don't remember disapproving of his gender politics very much. It seemed to me that Disney's finally wised up and started, you know, subverting some of the stereotypes they're most known for. But maybe I don't remember it, you know, vividly enough. But I feel like the the princess thing, I mean, I'm I think your advice as parents of older children seems wise and I will strive to heed it. But 
I can relate to this question less from the perspective of the moral development and or corruption of my children and more from a very selfish perspective of like, I still have to read the books to them, so I have to read them too. Mm-hmm. It's just aesthetically, how do I care to spend my own time? But you're the one buying the books. I mean, one big way I solve that is like, if, if there's a mo- kid's movie, book, or toy, or game I can't stand, I just don't get it, you know? Let yeah. my let my kid play with it at other people's but houses. But you don't know. You don't know. I mean, you don't know till you get them which ones will be fun. And so there's a whole set of books that I think of as like truck porn for kids. That's just like... And they have varying degrees of, they have no literary interest, but they have varying degrees of, like, taxonomic interest. Like, there are some books that go through the different kinds of trucks, but they kind of teach you little facts about the trucks, and they point out details of the trucks, like which ones do you have to climb a ladder to get into the cab, and which ones have a tilting dumper that can dump at multiple angles, and actually, do you know really about a tunnel loader? Like, I've learned a lot about trucks, and when there's actually information in the books... Uh, even though that I like bummed, I would rather than pick Amos and Boris or Dr. DeSoto or, you know, any of the, the, um, the narratives that I like more, Little Fur Family, uh, there's certain kinds of truck books that have other merits, but then there's some that I really think of as just like hustler of trucks. It's just like money shot of like truck (laughs) after truck after truck, just like pages and pages of just like the satisfaction of seeing a gleaming truck. At, with just, like, the label on it. <laughs> it's like being asked to read your kids, like, a, a smutty catalog. And I... <laughs> I don't... Like, I, no, there's nothing wrong with it. Like, I don't object to that being in my home. Seems perfectly fine for the kids to pour over it, but the, like, sacred time at the end of the day that I get to spend with my kids, and we pick three books and read them, one book for each of them plus the night-night book, a.k.a. the one we read last, I just am so bummed when they choose one of those. And I, like, try to steer them... I don't try to steer them away from that for the same reason Steve describes, but I'll try and suggest the ones I love, the ones that have some character or vim or imagination or plot or failing that. I'll point to like one of the truck books that has a little bit more grist in it. And sometimes they just like want the truck porn. I just figure they'll grow out of it. All right. Well, that's our call in show. That was fun. Those were very good questions this year. I thought, um, thanks Dana. Thanks Steve. Thanks Julia. Thank you. This porch is the pleasantest place we've ever recorded. Thank you. Yeah, no, it's pretty pretty damn pleasant, isn't it? Um, all right, let me see if I can do the credits for the first time ever from memory. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash culturefest, and you can email us at culturefest.com at email us at culturefest.slate. <laughs> email us at culturefest.com. No shit. <laughs> no, we're at Facebook. We're on Facebook now. But, the, but no, you say the email, email first. Email, oh. email us at culturefest at slate.com. You uh, can also leave us a note at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. Our producer is Ann Hepperman. Our intern is Lizzie Fison. The executive producer of Slate Podcast is Steve Lichtai. Oh, and also I should say we're still upstate uh, as part of our journey to the mount. We really wanted to thank Faith Smith for organizing uh, all of our excursions up here and especially the live show at the mount thank you so much and andy bowers is the chief content officer of the panoply network you can find all kinds of incredible like-minded fun shows at the panoply.com <laughs> if you go on the wire nets 
<laughs> Actually, it's at, I believe, iTunes.com slash Panoply. And because we always say this last, even though it doesn't make any sense to, our Twitter handle is at SlateCultFest. <laughs> for Dana Stevens and Julia Turner, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll see you soon. I remember a time when the bloom was on the cotton, when our hearts chased the clouds like the swallow on the wing, when our cares, which were already few, were soon forgotten, just sitting on the front line.